Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the art, culture, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. <laughs> Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Natalie Watson. <laughs> and, and we've got Patrick Kleppick. I looked at Natalie. I made a mistakes for me. <laughs> All right, well... This has all worked out extremely well. Uh, speaking oh, of things Rob. working out well, Patrick, did you see the most innovative creative football play of 2019 so far? Of the uh, world? Yes. You know, it's, it's maybe in history. You know, some people say you should be looking towards where the ball should be going. Patrick Mahomes showed once in the NFL this year, you actually don't. You don't have to look where you're throwing. But then the AAF. The always innovative, at least now I'm on this bandwagon, one of their quarterbacks realized, you know what? Why even look forward, left or right? Why not turn all the way around and toss the ball backwards like it's a fucking bouquet to to all of your friends and just see if someone catches it? And the receiver caught it! See, it's a little play known as the Sigourney, and uh, that team's been practicing that for, uh, you know, well, like all the teams in the AF, been practicing it for definitely a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's about how well drilled these teams all look. But the amazing thing is uh, that that actually worked, and that seems to be the AAF in a nutshell. Uh, it is such a weird league, Patrick, but I kind of can't look away, and I'm starting to unironically enjoy it. Yes, I. Uh, so I had set a. Uh, so last week on Waypoints, uh, Natalie and Danielle helped uh, me uh, muddle through the eight teams because of the lack of a Chicago team to uh, settle on uh, our boys at uh, in Orlando, the Orlando Apollos, as the team Shout I'm going to root for um, as we make our way towards the whatever they call the Super Bowl. Something happens at the end of April where two teams face off. The I'm not awesome sure. tub. That's the Super Bowl for the AAF, mm-hmm. which I've decided a- stands for Always Adventurous Football. You know what? Perfect. Not wrong. Not cannot wrong. wait. Cannot wait for the championship of the Always Adventurous Football League <laughs> at the Ceasing Operations Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I'd set a calendar reminder, and then I don't know. It, it, didn't, it didn't go off, or I set it incorrectly, and then like realized. Like an hour and a half into the game, like ah shit, I was supposed to be watching my boys, and so <laughs> trying to figure out like, well, how do I even watch Great. the Apollos? And uh, so I went to like the uh, the subreddit, and there was like, oh, you just go to aaf.com, and I was like, cool. Went to aaf.com, and they do have an embed for all of the games, but 
the league doesn't do like their own. It's just a live camera feed. It's like cutting between different cameras. There's no commentary. Oh my god. There's no. You don't know what down it is. You don't know how many yards there are to go. You don't know what the score is. There's literally nothing on the screen. It's just like someone holding up their phone and just like filming the game. Good. And so you hear all the ambient sounds of the football game. Like you literally just hear them doing their, you know, hot out hike and like calling their audibles. It's an extremely weird way to play the game that I made it through roughly 20 minutes before I said, how do I watch this with how I actually watch football? And it turns out CBS has a feed with all the usual um, stuff on top of it. And so I started uh, watching that. Although weirdly, in the NFL, they don't, it's uncommon for you to hear the actual calling of the plays on the field. Or if you hear the audibles, it's often by accident, like the microphone just happens to pick it up. Um, I don't know if there's like an actual like bylaw or like they try to keep that stuff a secret, but, but you don't hear that kind of stuff often called. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the AAF, like the commentators are talking about it and predicting plays based on what's being called on the field by the quarterback. Like multiple times a commentator be like, oh, like this means like three guys are going to be wide right and then a guy's going to come up the middle. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Um, and so it was an interesting uh, wrinkle. But uh, yeah, my, my boys, the Apollos, were they were down at the half. I started watching. They came back. There was a pick six by presumably some cornerback whose name I will learn after watching it for another week. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it was goofy. Like it was fun. Yeah. It's high scoring. Um, so in it's the closest thing you're going to get to watching college football without watching college football because college mm. football tends to be like much more high variant with blowouts and 40 to sixes and stuff like that. I like the fact that the two-point conversions are required on every touchdown. That is just, it's more fun to watch an actual play than yeah. uh, uh, a place kicker doing a something that's always going to go in. Um it was fu- I, it was yeah. fun. Like I, it was football. Like it filled the like base level need of like I would like to watch some football for another couple of weeks. And apparently, I'm now not only prepared for this, but right as this finishes up, the CFL starts. So I'm just going right into the Canadian Football League after this, and I'm ready to ride. I think that's getting away. weird because the rules are even fucking weirder yeah, in the Canadian weird. League. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my my only thing is like there was also uh, there's some great stuff in that uh, Apollo versus Commanders game. There's also a really ugly looking injury, and immediately I'm thinking like. I don't know if it's worth the risks in the pro game. I sure doubt whether it's worth the risks in the AAF game. That was the that was the thing. Is like oh for the uh, players was, like like why like there you, yeah. you could make you could credibly make an argument that the existence of the league, especially when it's not actually a develop, de- developmental league in which there is a pipeline to get you to the NFL, it's more uh, dangling a hope that yeah. maybe you show something and then an NFL team picks you up. Um, that you're actually giving people a false sense of hope and participating in a unreasonably violent game in which the only argument to actually continue playing in it is if you make it to a point where you're going to make tens of millions Mm -hmm. to compensate you for the fact that you're participating in a sport like that. Um, That is a fair criticism. Yeah. You know, theoretically more, if, if like it is competent, more money comes in where, it's, you know, I don't know how much these players are being paid. Like, I'm curious to start digging into, like, that side of it. Like, it can't be a lot, but, like, is it, like, 
more than if you were like working like some accounting. You know what I mean? Like, are these are they getting paid like sixty thousand dollars a year? Like, I have yeah. No but idea. again, like as Bamani Jones said on High Noon uh, with regards to like baseball versus football. In baseball, they they just hand you the check. In football, they ball it up and beat you with it uh, yeah. before before handing it over. And that's probably even truer uh, in in the AAF. Uh, anyway, though, speaking of, uh, I guess, potential boondoggles, uh, Patrick, your waypoint this week is kind of more about a topic. And then there's two really good pieces of content, uh, related to it, but you've been digging into this entire saga, uh, that I, I think has gotten a lot, a fair bit of national attention, certainly since, uh, Scott Walker, uh, lost lost the election, uh, the gubernatorial election in Wisconsin, but you've been looking at the Foxconn, uh, issue in Wisconsin uh, this week. Yeah, so uh, I was sort of decided to kind of revisit this for waypoints because recently Amazon decided to pull out their much lauded, vaunted HQ2 out of um, New York. Um, I guess it's still part of it's being, it got split and part of it's still going to be in Virginia, I guess, is the, um, I don't know the specifics on like the other half of that, but um, Amazon pulled out due to you know, I'm sure we'll learn more specifics, but like seemingly largely a progressive pushback against, uh, you know, corporate bribery, corporate welfare. Um, I think in New York, it was going to be a little under $3 billion in potential tax breaks um, over time um, to get them to build a, you know, a, a warehouse in a sort of like small little Amazon city. And uh, that's a deal that got scuttled, right? Like there, there was pushback like that has been part of, you know, the somewhat attributed to the election of, you know, AOC, you know, um, somewhat attributed to just a larger progressive, you know, uh, Cynthia Nixon, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I live in Illinois and uh, it has been impossible to live in Illinois. I don't live all that far from the Wisconsin border, um, maybe like 45 minutes to an hour. I spent a lot of time all year in Wisconsin. I have a lot of close friends and family in Wisconsin. My family has a small place in Wisconsin. I have been hearing about this Foxconn deal for the last couple of years. I So the Foxconn deal, um, in late 2017, Wisconsin won a bidding process to offer $4.5 billion, the largest public subsidy to a foreign company in American history. It is 10x, roughly, what other similar subsidies has been. Um, Foxconn... You are you. If you aren't familiar with the name Foxconn, you are at least probably vaguely aware of like. Aren't there lots of like human rights abuses for like the manufacturing of iPhones? And didn't they put up suicide nets? Like that's Foxconn. Like they're a Taiwanese company, um, in which a lot of their manufacturing is based out of China, and they make all sorts of money and have been uh, historically known for uh, being uh, having all sorts of uh, uh, labor uh, disputes, labor abuses. Um, uh, awful labor practices in their manufacturing facilities, especially in China. Um, and this was part of a an effort to bring Foxconn to build a sort of state-of-the-art manufacturing facility that was supposed to provide 13,000, quote, good-paying jobs by 2022. Um, and this is in a, uh, a state among, you know, lots of states in the Midwest in which the outsourcing of manufacturing has really hurt a lot of uh, an aging population in which that's all uh, they are known, and so um, just gonna just gonna rattle off some um, some very oh this oh, I should say comes from this part comes from a Bloomberg article uh, from a couple weeks back called Inside Wisconsin's Disastrous 4.5 Billion Dollar Deal with Foxconn, um, and then we'll touch on a, a separate uh, piece from Reply All in, in a minute that's more the human side of all this. But uh, if everything went as planned, 
Wisconsin would be uh, uh, would finally stop paying for this, be out of the red in 2042. Um, the tax revenue projections for this deal presume everyone will live in Wisconsin, despite the fact that the town, every, everything's going to be built in, Mount Pleasant, is 20 minutes from the Illinois border, border, and it is extremely common for people to live in Illinois and work in Wisconsin, um, and, and often uh, vice versa. Um, uh, it was... <laughs> It was pitched to Wisconsin, apparently, as becoming the state's own Wisconsin Valley. Like, that was part of Foxconn's pitch. Like, oh, it's Silicon Valley, Wisconsin. Will. Fox. Will. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. Willis. Gone. Mm-hmm. Valley. Yeah. No, you. Hey, Wisconsin. honestly, anything you come up with would probably be better than Wisconsin. I just, I wish I could have been in the meeting where that was actually said out loud and someone like <laughs> put their arms up and a fist like, yeah. I got it. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Foxconn also, like as a company, has like a uh, long history of taking subsidies and sort of like running off. They've done this not just, uh, this is the, like sort of the, the biggest boondoggle in the United States, but they've done it in Brazil and India and all over the place. They're just kind of well known for being a multi-billion dollar manufacturing company that then suddenly places that want those quote unquote capital J jobs, um, they end up like just running over themselves to offer Foxconn um, anything. And so um, this is part of basically supposed to be like the pin in Scott Walker, a notorious anti-labor union busting, enormous piece of shit governor in the great state of Wisconsin, um, who was thankfully voted out in the uh, midterm election. Um, This was supposed to be sort of like part of his like big, like, this is why you should elect me to a, I believe, third, would have been a third term. Um, and uh, in the, the the months and years since this was signed in late 2017, um, in August 2018, Foxconn said the factory would go from a 75-25 split of assembly line workers versus engineering workers to a 10-90 split, in which it would then be just 10% assembly line and 90% engineering workers, which Foxconn actually liked to call uh, knowledge workers, please. Not engineers, oh, knowledge God. workers. Um, and in January 2019, Foxconn missed its hiring quota by 82%, which means it didn't qualify for the tax rebates, but there are still um, all sorts of problems. I prefer uh, Fo- to think of it meeting their quota by almost 20. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's just how I, that's how I look at things because, uh, you know, I'm pro-business, pro-growth. Uh, you know, I just Who doesn't want... want to, look, I mean, we all want jobs, Rob, right? And so, I mean, that's ultimately like, you, you could go, go read this <clears throat> piece. There are a billion other things I could pull out that'll make you tear your hair out the fact that after um scott walker lost um his gubernatorial bid that they the legislator passed laws so that the new democratic governor couldn't rip up this deal because the town of mount pleasant had already invested 120 million because the state of wisconsin had already invested like 80 million dollars and they just wanted this deal to go through and it's just uh the bloomberg piece is a really uh stark look at like the high level of how these deals are, are made about the myth that politicians sell on this is how we get jobs. This is how we save the great American worker. This is how we bring manufacturing back. They're just selling packs of lies, throwing money into a check that will hopefully get them reelected. And then even when they get the boot, someone else, probably a Democrat, is going to have to deal with it. And the other piece of this, which I'm going to tee up for Rob because he like just finished listening to it and getting infuriated, is... There's a Reply All podcast called Negative Mount Pleasant, and Mount Pleasant's the town in which this was all supposed to be built um, that is very much about the human side of, uh, like, the the Bloomer piece is more about, like, technocrats and the politicians and how they get sold 
into suckered really into giving away this uh, kind of money. Although suckered maybe suckered's too strong. Like that's too strong that's, because it, it's their it world. presumes that they didn't <clears throat> they didn't know what they were getting into. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think at the high level, this is not this is not about people being suckered. Like Scott Walker in Wisconsin, were not suckered into doing this. No, Scott like, Walker this is, is a very smart, cunning individual who knew what he was doing when he was trying to destroy things like unions. Yeah, and, and especially exactly. public well, unions. He's cunning. Uh, yes. Is the, is the right? Yeah, I, I don't know how like actually smart he is, but he definitely <laughs> like it knows how to achieve uh, desired ends. Sure. Uh, yes. So, um, but as far as people actually getting conned, I think this reply all episode is really fascinating because it does sort of hit that where the rubber meets the road uh, level of deals like this. A lot of times they get discussed in these really like abstract and hard to follow terms. Like how Wisconsin structures, structures a deal like this is uh, both by necessity and somewhat by design opaque. Uh, So much of it is about like tax rebates, tax credits, tax quotas, hiring quotas. Yeah. Like what is that? What is it? Like you see, you read an article in your local paper. It's like, ah, they missed their hiring quota. And so they won't get the tax rebate. And maybe in your head you go, all right, well, the system's working. They didn't, they're not getting the money. Like, oh, okay. Like, maybe yeah. this is, I mean, it's just easy to see on a day-to-day basis. you don't know how, how the rest of the deal is structured, yeah. how that, right. like, what the, what the actual bottom line figures are going to be. You don't know necessarily how much the state is actually spending to make a deal like this happen versus how much it is simply agreeing not to tax. These things are hard to track. Uh, what you see in the Reply All episode is what it looks like when a deal like this comes to town. Basically, what happens to a community that finds itself in the middle of a, uh, a a policy initiative like this? And it's really kind of shocking and upsetting because the place it, it covers, Mount Pleasant, is kind of your quintessential Midwestern small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a colorful cast of characters at their regular town halls. Uh, their town halls are all very like what you think of as very small town America, right? This got updates from council members and citizens about how the softball league is doing. Uh, you know, things, things like that. How, how There's are, one how person who always has to come to the town hall to complain about something. <laughs> well, right. And the story kind of centers her as she's like the local shit stirrer. Uh, but then all those dynamics are kind of kicked into overdrive when this Foxconn deal uh, starts to become a possibility. And suddenly this town council, which had been a little bit somewhat accused of like being self-dealing and a, a, a little bit, uh, you know, self-serving with regard to how civil servants were rewarded uh, at the expense of taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. All these dynamics get amplified uh, in the, in the Foxconn deal. And you see how this, this little town council kind of become the frontline uh, muscle for Foxconn and the Republican party trying to push this deal through whether and not not only like whether or not people in Mount Pleasant want it the point is that people in Mount Pleasant are never given the chance to figure out whether they want it the entire thing happens basically behind closed doors and because these meetings are public there's records there's these really dramatic recordings of the moments where the town council's like okay we're going to talk about a thing we're moving into closed session and they kick everybody out uh and so it's a really like it starts as a really cute episode in some ways, like you'd expect it in almost a comedy, but then it starts getting really dark as the stakes of this become clear and the consequences for people in that community become clear. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the difference between 
like it's local journalism and it's done by reply all, but it's like the, the idea of like grounding what's happening in the trenches with deals like this. Like when, when you hear abs, like you hear like, Oh, like, you know, like some people had to move out of their homes. Like, Oh, well they were probably, they have to be compensated. Right? Like that's like, that's how that works. Right? Like they get some money and probably in your head, you think like, well, if they're their homes are getting a fair shake. They're going to be able to go get another, like they'll, they'll go figure that out. And like uh, I seem to remember, like one of the like most heartbreaking stories oh, in that reply all piece is somebody who more or less gets conned out of an uh, caught, basically caught in the bureaucratic grind in which um, they well, never. It's get actually their... even worse. Uh, so the issue is that uh, one of the people in the town is giving people money to move out of their homes to make room for this massive massive Foxconn facility. And they decide they're going to give this money per household, not per person relocated. Right. And yes. then suddenly yes. it's not yes. that much money, right? Like then they're giving you like $20,000 per household to move. One of the people caught up in this is a disabled person who had a home set up to be compatible and livable uh, for a person uh, with, with their health issues. That's expensive. Customizing a home that way is expensive and it requires, uh, you know, a, a lot of work. This has been their home for years and years. And they're just moved out and sent to a place that first, the new places are basically dumps. Uh, and second, it's sure as hell not, uh, you know, it's sure as hell not an accessible uh, home. And so this person is going to, is, is at the council and they start breaking down in tears, like asking, what did I do to you? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry to my family. I'm sorry uh, for, to whoever I pissed off on this council. I don't know why you're doing this. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's gut wrenching. It is one of the, it's excruciating here. Are the houses that they're being moved into like housing specifically built to, to replace the, the, um, homes that are, are being, uh, you know, torn down? No, it sounds like, so it's so like, Mount just Pleasant, like, cert, it's like, just like cert, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like scouted houses that are available in another area. Yeah, that's how it sounds. It also sounds like Mount Pleasant had some unused housing inventory, uh, i.e., places that were foreclosed on and abandoned. Uh, that maybe were like, the, like people were just kind of being moved into whatever ho housing was available, mm -hmm. and so it, it was a real crapshoot as to what quality of home you were getting. But what you were not getting was something equivalent to like. This is the awful thing. Like, if I lost my apartment tomorrow, if my apartment burned down, the cash value I'd get for that would not be near the value of, like, what it costs to recreate your home, right? Like, yeah, the things you actually have in need. That, this is that, like, times 100. Here's the other thing they were doing. The reason these people weren't given a choice about whether they were moving is not because they were being offered, like, fair value for their property. Mount Pleasant was declaring their entire part of the town blighted. And that they were being moved for health and safety reasons, which changes the uh, dynamics of like what you have to offer people, right? If you're offering people, like you, if you're moving people out of their home. Uh, like you're building you, a highway or yeah, something like that. You have to offer some kind of fair value uh, for that. Mm -hmm. If you declare that their home is basically a toxic waste dump. Yeah. yeah then you don't. And that's what Mount Pleasant did. And so after hearing this guy plead to be allowed to stay in his home, the board just voted, uh, you know, fuck it. Uh, the entire, that entire district is blighted. Everyone has to move and take this, this cash value we're offering. 
no modifications. Like it's it's awful. God. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, and that's why I think like these two pair together really well because like un- it's 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 given like the state uh, like that's why the, the Amazon thing is noteworthy, right? Like this was, I mean, it's even reasonable spec that you know um, Amazon could get a sweetheart deal from another city. Um, that you know the idea of corporate wo- welfare is not going to stop here, but it is like well worth understanding both how it works on like a uh, like sort of kind of higher political level and like mm-hmm. how that plays out but then also remembering because what it's so easy to forget is like what does this actually mean for like the people on the ground that would have been impacted right and like that's part of the, like the amazon thing is like well what would have happened to the people in those neighborhoods that like suddenly are gentrified as a result of amazon coming in it's different than them their houses being blighted by a city council and then but like it's still like the removal of people's homes, their 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 lives, and it's just it's it's just hard to ima- like it's just like there's this quote that like I couldn't uh, from the the Bloomberg piece where um, uh, Wisconsin officials apparently didn't consider Gao, who is a sort of a right hand man for um, uh, sort of like the chief executive at Foxconn. Um, uh, Wisconsin officials apparently didn't consider uh, Gao's track record uh, problematic. Instead, they uh, described the billionaire who charmed them with stories of his early days selling TV parts in the Midwest as almost philanthropic. Uh, quote, my impression of him was, what, what a nice person, said Scott Neitzel, who led negotiations for the Walker administration. Quote, an extremely genuine, down-to-earth tycoon. Okay, wait. Uh, when asked if the state... <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, contradictory. <coughs> yep. Uh-huh. Uh, when asked if the state looked at Foxconn's history... Uh, WEDC Chief Executive Officer Mark Hogan, which is related, is kind of an economic council in Wisconsin. Uh, Mark uh, Hogan says, quote, we didn't spend a lot of time on that because in the end, we got to know these people so well. Um, my favorite, and- my favorite roller coaster tycoon uh, uh, achievement is, <laughs> is down to earth tycoon. You know, when you just, when you just keep it real for everybody in the park, you know. I thought mm-hmm. that was the Chivo you got when your coaster killed like a hundred people in one ride when it smashed. Like I thought that was the. Oh, like I thought that's what the actually down that. to just, like earth. down to earth. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean that's unreal. There's there's another incredible line uh, where the town council president from Mount Pleasant, uh, Dave DeGroote, uh, says after this fact finding mission to a factory in Asia, he comes back and he's talking to the repl- uh, to the Reply All uh, journalist. And he says, I've seen the future and it's coming to Mount Pleasant. And literally the thing that I flash back to is the podcast Limetown, which is about an entire like town that is built and taken over for the service of like this massive uh, like weapons research conglomerate. Like literally the pins they hand out to everybody is at that town where everyone is eventually killed uh, is I have seen the future. Uh, and then it's got like the town seal on it. And I just flash back to that because like this is kind of the creepy dystopia uh, we're, we're creeping towards. But also, I, I was really kind of stunned by the degree to which you see how in the in the face of this money and influence from Foxconn, you see how this group of what you consider like kind of harmless town bureaucrats really kind of embrace uh an authoritarian impulse. And this like, shouldn't surprise anyone who's ever like dealt with, I mean, shit, you want to see like petty authoritarians, like, you know, attend a condo board meeting, stuff like that. Right. Like, yeah. 
any sort any sort of group of people there's going to be there's going to be like everyday people who like love the little taste of power they get and the ability to like run roughshod over people but to like see that happen at the Mount Pleasant Town Council uh and to see this guy who seemed like maybe a bit full of himself but fundamentally harmless to see him do this heel turn and basically turn into this like megalomaniac during a town council meeting and start like telling people he's going to find them out of order and have the sheriff throw them out. Um, it is so creepy because I think this is when we look at this from the high level, like in the Bloomberg's in the Bloomberg story, it's all these opaque numbers, right? It's all, it's, it's a policy initiative. It's hard to track. Like, how does this, like what's happening here? Uh, is it an effective policy? Is this a good way to raise jobs? Which are important questions. But at the ground level, you realize to make a deal like this happen, there are people who have to be moved out of the way. There are people who need to stop raising objections. There are a lot of things that need to get done. And there, to actually discuss them would be to stop them, right? To give people a chance to find out what is going to happen would blow up the deal. And so you need you know, your neighbor next door, your town councilman. You need those people to basically become the enforcers for an initiative like that. And that's the thing I found like really kind of haunting about this is Foxconn came to town and whatever happens with this factory, that town is not going to be the same. The civic like fabric of that town is forever altered Mm -hmm. uh, by what people did around this. Yeah. That makes me think a lot about like what actions can can we take to actually like as citizens to prevent these sort of things from happening? And I think a lot about like how Amazon didn't, didn't happen. Amazon, New York city HQ did not happen. And like, is it from like the amount of like organizers that, you know, like rallied against in the protests that were being done, you know, on wall street or like, it's like, I guess this is like I'm more posing this as a question rather than sort of my own thought. Um, but like how much say like in in an, an example like Mount Pleasant, like there were no there was no conference between the citizens and the like politicians making making deals with with uh the corporation itself. So when it comes to like New York City, like is it just that we have like i I don't know i'm I'm kind of just like where did how did how did we get ourselves out of this, and like what makes it what makes other smaller towns like incapable of not inca- I don't want to say incapable, but what prevents them they don't they don't have a a, a Twitter mob. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that like part of it, the Amazon thing cannot be disconnected from the amount of uproar there was on and constantly over social media over that specific mm-hmm. right. deal. And that also cannot be disconnected from the disproportionate amount of reporters and media critics who are then also located in New York. Mm-hmm. So there was also like something very specific about the Amazon deal in which you don't see that sort of concentrated uproar. In other, I mean, because it's, it's natural, right? You're going to claw back at something that's in your own backyard a little harder and with more, um, right. 
anger than something that's down the, you know, uh, across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is, like, it's both hopeful what happened to Amazon, but it also, like, is worth remembering, like, how how hyper-specific the local and even, like, regional and national politics are about, like, what's happening in, New York in that City. region that yeah. is different than, you know, Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin, which, like, again, as someone that spends a lot of time in areas like that, um, you know, what you get is, like, a big picture Bloomberg. You're lucky if you get a reply all, because that at least puts a human face to what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, I, it requires, I don't know, it requires a cultural shift where, you know, politicians are put into place that, are, like, specifically are against culture warfare or corporate welfare in order to solve these problems. But also it's like a larger indictment of where the United States is, you know, societally anyway, because part of the reason these deals get accepted is because the politician can credibly say like, what the fuck else do you expect us to do? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a failure of generationally of not having an answer for like, what do you do for these displaced manufacturing uh, towns? And like, I go through them all the time and it's like, yeah, you go through whole fucking blocks not a single person living in those homes. And this isn't because it was the 2008 bubble. This is because this is the slow erosion of these smaller towns where there is just nothing else. Or if they're in those houses, man, how is someone living in that house? But, you know, what's the what's the other option? Like, I, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. But also, you can see how even local people would say, well, yeah, that doesn't sound that great. But, I mean, I'd, a job is good. Right. And then, well, and it, because they're not going to, like, it's very politicians of just about every stripe, but particularly particularly GOP politicians are very comfortable at the rhetoric of we will spend whatever it takes, we will defer taxes on whatever it takes in order to create some number of jobs in the distance. But the government jo- has to be like, but, pardon, but these jobs aren't even for like this is the the part that gets me is like these the jobs that were going to be like predominant the, the majority of jobs at Amazon HQ were not going to serve the Long Island City population. Like mm-hmm. those were all fucking like tech engineer jobs like upwards of over 100k a year like like sophisticated software engineer uh uh careers. And in Mount Pleasant like you saw the swap from from you know the what was it like se- the 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 uh, number- seventy five twenty five to ninety ten no. and there was even the um and the interns uh, the, the the engineer even the engineers they were going to hire <laughs> um they eventually Foxconn noted they were going to start shipping in folks um from China to be the engineers and then there's a there's a line in the piece where <laughs> the Wisconsin like bureaucrats like figure out like well shit like I thought that wasn't going to happen and then they realized they didn't put it in writing that. Foxconn right. just said they were going to not do that. Right. But there was nothing to prevent them from doing that. L- I mean, largely, that stuff comes from because, well, if you put that in the writing, then Foxconn is going to say no, and they're going to go somewhere else. So Right. And, um, and, and, and the fact that, like, they, they couldn't maintain uh, interns, like, at the Foxconn <laughs> Corporation. Yeah. Like, they, they filled, like, many of their, like, positions – with interns and then like just here it is uh only about 60 people working there abruptly called about 15 of them all interns into a room to say they should seek other jobs because there wasn't enough work to hire them full time and this is supposed to be a factory that's sustaining like an entire town like this it like that's what's like so bonkers to me is just 
where like the 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 actual math and and what you're advocating for, which is the people of the town itself, the people of Long Island City, the people of of Mount Pleasant, um, bringing them careers, and then that just being like a fucking lie. Like that, it's just there's like I don't see what's the other way around it. Like I, I unless like Amazon is like inexcusable because there's no way that you can say that those jobs, like I don't know, the, those were those jobs were always going to be those jobs, and it seems like here in like the Foxconn there was like a switch up, and that there was like things not written in it there was there was not you know uh things in writing that that could have prevented this and things like that that they were like kind of getting things like the rug pulled out from underneath them um but but there it was a case of these are things that should have been foreseeable right this is the other part of well yeah they could have been prevented by just like doing due diligence right like by 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 putting like in writing the protections and things that you (laughs) like well, there's this great moment where, like, the Foxconn negotiator, like, uh, there's text that Bloomberg saw where he's texting with uh, some uh, Economic Development Council uh, people. Love to text. And he's texting with them and says, give me $200 million and this deal is a go right now. And it's amazing because it lets you know what the Foxconn negotiators thought of the people they were dealing with. That is the most shoot your shot like text to send in the middle of a negotiation around this. Like, Hey, you give me, you give me $200 million cash up front. We will, we will close this deal right now. Uh, it is. And also presumably that's worked before, right? Yeah. Like you don't, you don't, you don't shoot that shot unless like oh, yeah. some other small time, you know, city council person, whether in the United States or somewhere else in their equivalent position, like said, yeah, of course. Like, yes, well, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's sign the deal. This, this, this is what another fucking quote. Following a similar playbook as it did in India and Brazil, the com- Foxconn in August announced a $100 million uh, joint venture fund and said it's building R&D centers around Wisconsin, um, including Green Bay. Uh, nobody has co- uh, cogently explained uh, what these centers will do. One person familiar with the plans calls them glorified think tanks. Foxconn says they'll, quote, <laughs> one of, mm, this is my, one of my favorite lines of corporate gibberish, cultivate a new class of vertical solution providers. Like, what the fuck does that even mean but you know what like that it's that stuff words like that um gives you a window into how you arrive at like the quote i read earlier of someone like well we didn't look into it that much because you see enough buzzwords you see and you go on enough fancy dinners Mm -hmm. they fly you to to china to look at a manufacturing plant and you get promised a photo op with president trump and like you see how this is excusable but you just you just see how how it happens yeah um and clearly foxconn is very good at this because they continue to be able to pull it off over and over again because there are not solution solutions ideas to even provide as an alternative because there's nothing to run against it's just someone says we'll fix it and even if they end up breaking everything in the process you know the government of wisconsin you know partially fueled by you know eight plus years of scott walker trying to bust up everything that government does anyway um doesn't have another option to provide. And and even then ties the hands of the Democrats when they come in to try and fix this thing. Like it's it's a long con by the Republicans, honestly, where like they know the Foxconn thing is fucked, but you know what's you, you know what's clever? Is if they can't rip up the deal, that is gonna taint all six years of the Democratic governor, 
where in six years, boy, the Republicans can come in and say, you know, they they really fucked up this whole Foxconn thing. And no one's going to remember that they had passed any legislation saying that they tied the hands of the Democratic governor. There's two other things to bear in mind here. One is that these are being often it's portrayed as like as if providing these breaks, these incentives is some kind of neutral thing to spur growth and create jobs. Yeah, this is a good what, point. What gets overlooked in that is other firms competing in this space that are already established, that already run manufacturing facilities do not get these tax breaks. They do. This is this was the issue with Amazon, too. Right. Like a lot of the retail businesses that Amazon competes with are doing things like, I don't know, paying full time employees uh, paying taxes in a shit ton of different municipalities, giving their workers uh, they, like fucking lunch breaks. Yeah, I, ideally, like certainly, like at least not hitting the the same like incredible lows of working in an Amazon fulfillment center. Mm-hmm. But Amazon comes on because they're the the new hotness. They're coming in, and everywhere they go, they're demanding these almost extortionate tax breaks and tax credits that the places they compete with can't get nobody's going to like nobody was going to blow the budget up to get a new sears uh office building or something like built somewhere like that never happened you can drop you can drop the almost like they the, it, it is extortion of like yeah. local governments that don't have other options and so this was the issue with like amazon the other part of this was you were going to have the government basically massively reduce the overhead that Amazon has to pay on operating, which will give it a massive competitive advantage to established firms that probably provide, uh, that, that probably in a lot of cases provide more jobs, better jobs uh, to, to more people. You are helping Amazon undercut those folks and drive them out of business. That's just, that, that is what is happening in a case like this. And that's what's happening to agree with a place like Foxconn, right? Like Foxconn is coming in and, Almost certainly one reason you were pushing for incentives like this is so that, again, you can offer uh, lower, lower rates, lower costs to places like Apple uh, and get goods produced cheaper uh, rather than pay an established manufacturing company that might have higher obligations to workers, to pensions, stuff like that. These things are not neutral. These are jo- not jobs from thin air. There is an element of cannibalization uh, in inherent in, in a lot of deals like this and presenting it as these are all these gee whiz new companies with these brilliant new ideas. Their brilliant new idea is this extortion in a lot of cases. Their brilliant new idea is getting these sort of sweetheart packages that allow them to just slowly run their opposition into the ground. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only version of this, right? Like we see this uh, all the time with sports teams. Like, this is just a different form. This yeah. is like in which what's dangled over people's heads, politicians' heads, is the the the, uh, the potential for jobs. But for decades, um, like billionaires have been subsidizing uh, the development of new stadiums in service of, well, fandom. Well, we'll take your we'll take your team away unless you let us build a new site and you subsidize half, three quarters, most of it. And it's like only recently in the last five years that we've seen some cities tell billionaires to fuck off, like find another way to do it. Um, And like this is all part of the same mindset, like the same psychology of uh, extorting folks like by dangling something over their head, whether it's fandom or whether it's a job. But like it's not a coincidence that both of those things are like 
deeply psychologically important to people in different ways. Like whatever you think of fandom and sports fandom, like it in a lot of places, especially, you know, places like the Midwest, like deeply ingrained in culture and like community. And like, that's what jobs are too. And like, that's how you can get away with shit like this is because like on the promise of taking away something or giving you something that means a lot to you um, and potentially your family. Mm. Um, and the last thing I'll say is like, we will bend over backwards to funnel money's money into uh, operations like this rather than provide any direct aid or benefit to people who are struggling to make ends meet uh, to people whose jobs have been uh, eliminated by uh, offshoring things like that. Um, Providing actual, like putting like cash in people's pockets and helping them directly and injecting money directly into communities. Well, that's, you know, that's not rewarding people for hard work, right? That's creating a culture of dependence. But if you hand this money to, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar companies, uh, that is job creation. That is all to the good. That is the virtuous American way. And that is kind of where a lot of our political rhetoric is. And I think one reason why this like fell apart in New York is that at least in New York, in addition to all the media attention, you do have like, you have some establishment left, but you also have a growing sort of, uh, you know, radical left that is, that doesn't buy into that rhetoric, that, that sort of contests the very premises of, of these arguments. And so there were people in New York that once they started to sour on the deal, once they started to realize their, their supporters were souring on the deal, there was, there was political action that could happen that could derail this. Um, I'm not also, sure. They suggest, it suggests like actually these arguments are easier to defeat than we think. And that we know that the arguments for them are paper fucking thin. Yeah. And that New York and Amazon per, and, you know, looking at the boondoggle that is Foxconn, like provides like a rhetorical and a political path forward, hopefully for other activists in their local areas to but push back on similar proposals. Wisconsin by design also has a less representative legislature. That's the other, right. that's the other part I was going to uh, getting at with this is there's also an element of Scott Walker had years to create a legislature that reflected his values and priorities. Mm. And so when you have a deal like this begin to, you know, turn rotten uh, and you have people realizing how they've been taken what you've got are Scott Walker's and Dave DeGroote's all the way down, right? That's, that's who you can appeal to, to say, can you, can you fix this? Can you stop this? And in Wisconsin, you've got a bunch of people who actively don't want to help you, uh, who actively want to see deals like this get done, who want to make sure that, who view it as their job to deliver distressed communities and workers uh, into the hands of uh, massive corporations. That's their worldview. That's, that's how they see their job in government. I think that's the other key difference, and uh, that's the that's one of the dynamics that we really we really need to see the change uh, over the over the coming election cycles. Uh, anyway, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to dig into another fascinating report. Uh, this time from ProPublica uh, about the uh, crash of the 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 crash of the USS Fitzgerald. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, and we're back. So, um, time for something way less distressing. Yeah, uh, like, another another cheery pick me up. Oh, this what? fucking article, y'all, <laughs> fucked me up so much. I took no notes because I was too fixated Same. on reading the. I goddamn felt like I was thing. watching I a my, fucking movie. I always have my notebook out. I'm ready to like jot down things, pull quotes. I got I got through the opening like six paragraphs put my notebook aside it was just like okay you have my attention i felt like i was watching a movie in which tom hanks is there and is trying to save a naval ship because that's a movie that's been been done before but oh this oh god this this really fucked me up like all serious, it really does read like a peacetime crimson tide or something like that. Um, so what we're talking about is a is a story called "Fight the Ship," uh, which is a ProPublica report by T. Christian Miller, Megan Rose, and uh, Robert uh, Fudaraki on the collision of the USS Fitzgerald uh, and how it revealed some major issues with the U.S. Navy. And some background on this is um, you might remember in 2017 there were two in two separate incidents in which U.S. Navy destroyers collided with cargo ships in the Pacific. Uh, and both of those incidents involved uh, a significant number of fatal injury, uh, fatalities aboard both ships. And it was a scandal that had people sort of questioning what the hell was happening in the U S Pacific fleet and, uh, resulted in some commanders getting, uh, cashiered. Mm-hmm. So the specific story we're talking about covers the June 17th collision of the USS Fitzgerald uh, with a with a cargo ship uh, just off the coast of Japan, and the background here, there's a lot of things that are distressing about this. But one of the things that is really eyebrow raising with a story like this is the USS Fitzgerald uh, is right now sort of the top of the line uh, Arleigh Burke class uh, U.S. destroyer. Now that that destroyer class is in the process of being replaced. Uh, but nevertheless, right now, these are theoretically, at least uh, the most advanced destroyers, the U S Navy uh, fields. Uh, and both ships were part of the United States seventh fleet, which is kind of arguably maybe uh, regarded as like the most elite and important fleet in the U S Navy. Uh, this is a fleet that uh, whose record goes back to world war two. So this was kind of a really shocking set of incidents. And this one was, was particularly shocking because here you have like, again, theoretically, you should have the best ships uh, with the best equipment in the best and most prestigious fleet in the Navy. Uh, and both have these two disasters in, in, in short succession, uh, both involving your destroyer just fucking walking into the path of a container ship. Uh, so how does that, that happen? And this story is, I think, really fascinating because one, it tells a really tense and like compelling 
human story. Like it puts you right on this in fucking there. Like, it feel, like that's what I meant when I fe- when I said I was. It feels like you're watching a movie because if you the play by play is like down to such a like minute detail. And also, like, the packaging of the article itself, like, it's mm. so evocative. It's, like, one of the... You want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, the the the, the way that the article, it's, like, um, uh, uh, there's, there's, like, not quick time, but there's, there's, like, there's, there's, uh, while you're scrolling through, uh, scrolling down through the article, there's, like, like visuals in the background that are being that are being like played on loop and and depending on what section you're in like there's there's one section where uh at the top you see the actual path of the two ships as as you're scrolling like in in real time as you like move they like they cross with each other and and you see like it it pinpoints exactly how many degrees like the the ACX crystal which was the cargo ship like pushed the USS Fitzgerald like into and and it's like for someone who doesn't like understand knots and degrees and like other maritime like description or or uh I don't know if that's the right word but other like boat descriptions I don't know yeah. <laughs> like yeah there's like a, there's what's crazy you had camp. the right word by I did? The way. like okay. maritime and you're like nah boat <laughs> well I wasn't sure but, but I mean like what you what you describing <laughs> is like it you you you've seen those words. You think you know what they yeah. mean. You have like some kind of context yeah. for them, but you don't actually know how they all connect. Right. And it's like right in the middle of the paragraph where your brain is trying to, figure it to out. build a yeah. mental map of what it's saying. It actually just shows you what it is. Yeah. So that immediately you're able to take the written word and then just apply it to a visual, a visual that is like very evocative of uh-huh. what it just described in a way that's like a one-two. Yeah, page. exactly. And and there and then it it also has you know like artwork, um, that's you know, uh, a very emotionally devastating, um, of, of, you know, painting portraits of some of the people that were on the ship. Um, it has, uh, 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 um, uh, boat paths, maritime paths. No, that's not it. It has, it has the route, (laughs) the boat route. There you go. The USS Fitzgerald route is there. Um, and, and, and this, the, the, the pacing of, you know, uh, of the article itself in, in the way that it jumps from, you know, context to, to like moment by moment, what went down, like as the crash happened and in the moments just after, um, was just like incredible to me. Like this was such a riveting, uh, 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 experience like reading experience so um it was it was just extremely impressive i i'm not like super familiar with propublica in the first place so um the uh seeing seeing an article like this packaged this way was was fascinating and and really helped me like paint the picture of the, what went down in my head and it is just like absolutely devastating um uh the fact that the the thing that got me the sort of not the most i mean there's so much in this that is just like so fucked up um but this happened at 1:30 in the morning and to the 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 end of their training that day was like 11 p.m. and i was thinking like what time would i expect like disaster to strike in like I I would say like 
three in the morning, four in the morning, like some sometime that like you just the 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 fact that like one thirty in the morning is like it is a time that like doesn't seem that far away from I don't know like normal I don't want to say normal hours because obviously like everything that takes place on the ship is like operating on a completely different time schedule from from like our normal from like my like day to day but that is just like it's it's so it's so terrifying that that is the level of like so much of so much of i mean there's so many things to attribute to what what went wrong here but thinking about like the exhaustion of inexperience like this the piece opens up by saying you know, it's the dead of the night and the USS Fitzgerald is on a secret mission to the South China Sea. The sailors on the $1.8 billion destroyer are young, tired, and poorly trained. Disaster strikes at 1.30, a.m. Like, that, like, the amount, oh, God, the amount of exhaustion that, like, that that training ends at, at 11 p.m. and just two hours later is is how long it takes for like just that exhaustion to fully kick in and 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 you you know what I'm do you know what I'm trying to say well like the, yeah I mean the other thing is um the training had wrapped up at 11 and I think the ship had basically been underway since like six in the morning yeah the people who were watching the ship at this point a lot of them uh, a number of them had put in had had like one or one and a half hours of sleep in the past 24 right. Like that was how people were operating. And so it's not, you would think in normal circumstances, like, okay, like maybe something like this would, would happen in the very dead of the night. Like, yeah. Like, like just before dawn. Right. But no, this happens basically within a couple hours of the ship going into night travel mode. Yeah. Right. Of, of the, of the crew concluding their drills and, uh, and heading to bed. And almost immediately, like the minute that happens, the minute, uh, the, the ship, uh, sort of stands down for the evening yeah. uh, is when the danger just spikes yeah. because what the people who are left doing their job uh, are just mind numbingly exhausted. And then the other issue is, do they actually know how to do their jobs? Right. Do they know how to do all the jobs they are asked to do in the process of keeping a watch like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the really, that's the other really unsettling part like this. The, picture that's painted in this piece is that uh, ships like the USS Fitzgerald are kind of paper tigers, uh, right? You can say it's a $1.8 billion warship, but what it describes over the course of this article is basically uh, something that's, you know, just holding on by, by the slenderest of threads, right? You've got a crew that has not had time to train. Uh, there are not enough crew. And, a number of the officers uh, and a number of a number of the officers aren't really well trained on their specific equipment as well. There, there's a specific quote uh, uh, that I think is like super telling here where uh, uh, the article reads its radars were in questionable shape and it's not clear the crew knew how to operate them. One could not be made to automatically track nearby ships. To keep the screen updated, a sailor had to punch a button a thousand times an hour. The ship's primary navigation system was run by 17-year-old software. Like. Yeah. Well, 
and so this is the this is the this is such an interesting story because I think this is also one of those stories where with all the things that are fucked up in the US right now and the way our government has operated for for you know the past decade you would think well shit like we spend a unbelievable amount on defense spending right if there's one aspect of the US government spending uh, that is probably going to be, uh, you know, a tight ship, right? If you expect one thing to be working really, really well, you would expect it to be the Navy, right? You would expect, with all the money that's gone into that, uh, you would expect the military would at least be well taken care of, even if social services are, you know, falling into ruin and being cut right and left, uh, you know, domestically. You would expect the military, which has been, uh, you know, getting pretty uncontroversial, massive spending increases uh, pushed to it over the years. You'd expect they'd be doing all right and they would not be facing sort of infrastructural decay. Especially... And yet what this this story paints is a picture of, oh yeah, the rod is hitting there too and it's way worse than you think. Right, especially because... The Navy is is like as as it sort of painted in this article, supposed to be the first line of defense against like our current biggest threat, which is like n- nuclear warfare, I guess. Like the Navy is right now like the number one thing like protecting us from from like offshore offshore threats from like North Korea. Um they talk about like uh like of a, a more uh, aggressive Russia and things like that. Um, and so like, it seems like the Navy, especially with like Trump's fucking rhetoric around like who our biggest enemies are right now. Like, it seems like the Navy would be the number one, like most concentrated, like most attended to faction of like the U S military itself because of of every of everything because of like the context in in which like I understand like Trump's uh, uh position towards towards like military why we're spending so much on the military and what his his like his ideas of our our biggest threats to be and the fact that like this the like the commander of the ship specifically like this ship was like being sent out understaffed. And this mm-hmm. ship was being sent out, like, having not passed, like, I think it's 22 different requirements that it has to pass in order to, like, be deemed, like, a, like I don't know, not safe to... Fully battle yeah, ready. Yeah, fully basically. battle ready. Exactly. Yeah. It had passed seven of them, and it had left port to to go on, like, a, I don't know, like a tri- tri- trial mission at first sort of showing the flag in the South China Sea and uh, ba- like basically that's what it's being asked to do but but it never returned back right so it just like kept being sent like it it just kept going it was like supposed to return much earlier i maybe well, i maybe no so it had just left port it was just being sent out on this new mission the issue is that uh, that ship, like a lot of other ships, kept being sent out on these missions uh-huh. uh, that were – so it was like, oh, tensions are high with North Korea right now. Right. We're going to send a carrier battle group uh, to, like, sail near Korea uh, just as a show of force. And ships like I this see. were detailed to do that. Uh, and every minute you got a ship out 
on the high seas is a minute the ship is not undergoing maintenance and repair. Right, and the problem right, is right, 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 right. All these ships are way behind on that. Right, right, right. Um, the other thing that's really kind of uh, astonishing here is so the other the other thing to bear in mind uh, is that things like this happen over a term of years. Like naval warships tend to have like operational lives of like thirty years, uh, if if not longer. So like things operate across multiple administrations. There's a second part of this article that covers just what's been happening in the Navy, um, you know, basically since the early 2000s, starting with the first Bush Bush administration, then through the Obama years, and now now into the present day, where just bit by bit, bit, uh, the Navy has been kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul uh, with a lot of this stuff. And now we are at the point where you can't do that trick is not working anymore. Uh, The costs have added up and become way too dangerous. And now what was sort of a series of like minor problems, maybe 10 years ago is starting to hit the crisis point. That's Mm -hmm. the other, that's the other thing this article is starting to get at. Yeah. I found the, I, so I'm reminded, uh, this is a a side to shout out, um, that Daniel and I, uh, Danielle Reno and I did a podcast about sunshine. Um, uh, recently and my favorite moment in that movie is there's a moment where when uh, they're on the ship and the chief like sci- scientist like whoever does all the calculations for the ship and when it needs to change direction makes a mistake and that mistake leads to a lot of deaths and really a lot of the errors that befall the rest of that film and there's like a shot where the camera pans over at Tim and he is just screaming fuck 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 because he messed up like he made a mistake and he made a human error and like some of my favorite stories, some of the ones I find the most compelling are people who psychologically we are built up to be superhuman. Like the kind of people that are like, you know, you hear terms like corporal and like all the fancy terms that go in the military. And in our minds, like they are built up to be like more than they're they are the best of us. Like they they aren't capable of making these mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what I find so compelling in this in, in this piece is like the moments where it finds times like to visit those people and sit in those moments. It both explains how they came to make those mistakes, what they did in the moment, how they tried to explain how that mistake occurred, and like really ruminates in those moments to like put you, even though the the, the, the article largely concludes with very convincing evidence that um, they were hit on both sides, really, like they weren't prepared, but also like the bureaucracy and the, 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 the structure led them to failure. But it doesn't like lose the human part of that in the process. It like sits in... What is it like to know that a mistake you made, regardless of how it happened, like led to the deaths of seven people? And like those are the most haunting passages in in the whole piece where it like really like I think there's a sequence where like they all start to kind of gather up on the ship and they're trying to assess the damage. And one of the uh, the main folks like is just found sobbing uncontrollably. I think uh, it was one of the. Uh, there were so many names I found trouble to keep track of, of everybody, but you know, where, where someone like realizing the gravity of the mistake they have made is like now incapable of doing their job, despite all of the training they have spent thousands of hours building to moments like this, like they are unable to do what they are then asked to do and others have to step up. And like, I think, I think the article, like despite being like a story about like a bureaucratic nightmare and how that leads to systemic failure, uh, also is like deeply human in a way that, like I, I found it to be remarkable. Yeah, it's um, 
it's, it's just an incredible it's just an incredible report because like it is such a thorough going over uh of of the situation and it is amazing when you do see like the person uh who had the who was uh the officer on on deck when the collision happened uh yeah she does break down and basically cannot like cannot function uh during the crisis because the magnitude of what has happened and what she arguably uh you know helped cause uh is just hit home and it's it's too much to bear like how how do you bear that but then you also see uh you know some aspects of this is this is the danger right the other issue here is that the navy has this culture of you do the mission it does not matter how fucked things are you fulfill your mission you have to do the job with what you have available and the problem is institutionally the navy has relied on that to paper over all these bureaucratic fuck-ups uh, that have been mounting for years, right? Uh, just figure it out. Look, we get that your crews are under-trained. We get that the equipment is starting to break down. You're a naval officer. Go figure your shit out. Get the mission done. And that is how you set up people for a disaster like this, right? Because there's going to be a moment where that can-do spirit just can't do it anymore, right? You're, just, you're, you're, you're playing Russian roulette at that point. But you also see... Uh, you know, people like there's this this one woman, uh, Lieutenant Stephanie Bro, uh, who takes over the damage control uh, responsibility during this crisis. And she's sitting there doing equations, uh, you know, on a scratch pad, basically figuring out like, OK, what's the rate at which the ship is flooding? Where is it flooding? Uh, where <laughs> you is even fucking imagine? Where, like where I was trying. Need, yeah, she's like she's like realizing she needs to flood other parts of the ship to balance out the flooding, <laughs> so the ship doesn't capsize. But then there are other risks. How's that going to change its role? And she basically takes over this effort and starts stabilizing a situation where like this ship was in grave danger of sinking, and just through like you know sheer skill at this aspect of her job and ability to take control of the situation and get everyone pointed in the same direction. You know, she's one of the people that like saves the ship, right? Uh, you've got a, uh, you know, the, the only surviving helmsman uh, ab aboard the ship uh, basically has to go back to the auxiliary helm, uh, which is basically at the stern of the ship and not at the bridge. And the intercom stops working because things are all fucked aboard the ship and it's, it's flooded. So they can't actually talk to the person steering the ship in the internal ship communication. And so they have to rig up like a game of telephone between the commanders on the bridge down to this helmsman in the back of the ship, steering the ship uh, in order to get his steering inputs to him because he has to maneuver the ship very carefully dealing with all this flooding and they're still in a heavily trafficked area. They figure out a way to do this. And it's kind of like, you can see why uh, the Navy's held in high regard. You can see why you, you, the benefits of having this culture of don't complain, don't complain about the tools you're given, just, just fulfill the job because there's a moment in crisis where you do need to be able to just focus on the job at hand and get it done. Mm -hmm. But my God, has that been exploited by basically everybody else above them uh, in this situation? And uh, that's the really astonishing thing here is is the degree to which uh the, this this rot has been allowed to fester um and a lot of people who have pointed it out over the years have been kind of encouraged to retire early right there's been no if you were right about this if you if you called that something like this was coming four or five years ago nobody thanked you for that message 
you were kind of shunned. You had already been relieved of your, yeah, you had already been relieved of your duty for like speaking up in the first place. Right. Um, Last thing I'll just point out is in the, in the second piece, uh, just covering how the Navy got to the state. um, There's a couple things. Vern Clark, which was the Navy's top military officer uh, during the Bush administration, started trying to run the Navy like a business and began streamlining warships to cut costs. And uh, basically it's austerity for the Navy, right? Like what positions can we eliminate aboard each ship to run them with a smaller complement, uh, both to save money and to stretch the same number of sailors across more ships. Uh, and so they just kept cutting uh, crew sizes aboard ships. And then the ships themselves are not even meeting those lowered requirements and so ships that are supposed to be operating with like 300 people are operating with like less than 250, many of whom are very new at their jobs. Um, and so that starts happening basically in part because of uh, Iraq, where the Navy is being asked to send sailors into Iraq to sort of uh, take up some jobs to free up uh, soldiers for, for work in the occupation there. Uh, part of it is also just, oh, we, we have to cut costs and, and run this Navy like like a business. The other interesting thing is uh, with all the budget stuff that sort of marked all the Obama years with um, continuing resolutions rather than passing new budgets uh, because nobody could agree on what a budget should be. So you can only do a continuing resolution, which says whatever we spent last year, we're going to spend that again. You can't actually reallocate money within a continuing resolution. You're basically like copy pasting last year's budget onto this year's, which means that whatever your needs were back when this first budget was passed that you were continuing to propagate, you have to keep spending money on those needs, even if those needs no longer really exist. And so like the Navy has this growing maintenance backlog that they can't just move money into because they don't have that budgeted. They do have money budgeted for buying more ships so they just kept buying ships and equipment. And meanwhile, they couldn't actually like pull any of these ships into port and give them a thorough going over. Uh, so that's the other fascinating part of this. It's such a good article, and it is also... Um, I don't know. It's, it's scary, man. Like... <laughs> With all the money, like, man, if the United States can't get a fucking, if it can't get a destroyer to sail out of harbor without hitting a cargo ship, right? Like, that's, that seems bad. Like, what, what other near misses do we just not know about? <laughs> that ship had already had, like, three near misses, like, yeah. in its time, in, in this, like, specific, like, time period. Like, this, like, there were, there were, there were signs. There were countless signs. There were countless moments in which, like, like you know, disaster was nearly, nearly missed and like evident, like could could happen at any time. <laughs> the fact that they were yeah, using I mean, fucking Gmail because they're like. Their their internal like military emails weren't working, so well, they were just using Gmail on the ship, like. Every, every, yeah. everything, everything about oh, this. The fact that they have ship tracking software, they have the ship tracking radar that everyone is like, well, that's our ship tracking radar. So it shows us everything around us. Right. So if that shows the area around us is clear, we're all good. 
Um, and that really needs to be the case because the Navy no longer has enough sailors to post a port and starboard watch. Like, used to be a ship would run with somebody looking off the right side of the ship, sh- somebody looking off the left side, just to say, like, hey, holy shit, there's something out there. Now, because of cost cuts, you don't have that. You have one person running back and forth trying to see, like, what's on either side of the ship. So there's a lot of reliance and trust put on this radar. And what apparently nobody, like, trained the crew on is the fact that the radar doesn't scan all the ocean all at once. You have to sort of set, like, where is it scanning, right? Where is it looking? And the radar was set to look at distant ship tracks. It was not actually scanning what was around the ship, but nobody knew that. And so when they saw the radar sweep and they would say, hey, there's nothing around us, you could have looked out the window and seen that wasn't true. But everyone's like, well, the radar radar shows it clear, so we're all good. Um, And you couldn't retune the radar because the button to tune the radar was broken. And they taped it over. Um, and like, so like oh. I get the United States spending priorities are grotesque. The United States spends way too much money on uh, defense relative to uh, social programs, social services. Uh, and so I get the, I get the uh, complaint that, well, why do we care about what state the Navy is in? I think, one, this is reflective of a lot of dynamics mm-hmm. in American government right now. Yeah. The other part of this is, like, just my personal position is it's bad to have a massively expensive military uh, that, that you don't need uh, to, you know, just for, just for the sake of, like, carrying out an aggressive uh, and, uh, you know, rapacious foreign policy. That's bad. What I think is actually scary to me and and is in many ways worse is having a massively expensive military that appears to be very effective and competent and is not. Because mm-hmm. that, at that point, like you would say, oh, the, milita- the United States military is, is the best, most powerful in the world. What you see in a story like this is, I'm not sure, like, do we know what we have at this point, you know, if you, if you gave the Navy a mission, how confident would you be that it would be carried out properly? Uh, if like lives were on the line also, and I, yeah. Yeah, also where the fuck is that money going? If not to like man these, sh- and if not to like infrastructure on these ships and, and, and like, uh, enough, enough staff members to man them. Like where, like this, like this spending budget, on this outrageous spending budget is like not even being allocate like alloc it's seemingly allocated in a way that like can maintain what we're spending on if that makes sense like it just yeah no they don't they can't they have money to spend on new equipment and new ships they don't have money to spend on maintenance and so that's been the direction we've just been headed for ages is just Keep buying fancy new, which again points to another critique is to what degree is the United States defense budget about enriching military contractors uh, versus actually building a sort of strong and professional military. Um, There's, there's an element of, Oh, if we can, if we can enrich contractors uh, you know, then, then by all means we'll spend money. Once that equipment is purchased and the money has been given to contractors, we will shortchange everything else about effectively deploying and implementing and training people on those systems because that's not the point. Yeah. Right? It, the point is to get the money uh, to, 
you know, the military industrial complex. And, and, and the point isn't even to be like combat oriented or like combat, combat ready. It is literally displays of force, literally yep. just like sailing by our in quote unquote, like enemies and, yeah. and just, and just showing off. So. And that's, and that's the thing, right? Like, the the navy is used as this like threat so routinely it is so often held up as like this united states navy the the, the united states uh you know is is the most powerful and competent uh you know military in the world and here is a really ugly story that casts a lot of doubt on that and that's that's the other part of this is um this is the kind of Navy that writes checks that it can't cash. Mm -hmm. And that's what this story kind of reveals. So it's a fascinating story. There are so many uh, like amazing details in it. Uh, it really does, uh, you know, read like a movie or, or, or a novel. It's, it's incredible. Well, so to that, to that point, like one of the stylistic things that's interesting about how they chose to write out this story is that like, it's very normally when you are like attributing like statements and quotes, it's usually like, someone said according to blah 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 and so they put a footnote at the end that's like so kind of weird that like none of this says like where individual quotes came from and like they just made a stylistic decision mm -hmm. that they things they found like let's say in you know a report or a log um or an interview rather than attributing those like specifically to where they got them like they just decided um like, we're just going to drop that part. We have done the due diligence to, like, find, right. like, this story. And actually, it's more effective for it to be more cinematic, for, like, lack of a better term. Like, they were basically making the argument that, like, it was to be more rhetorically effective was to remove some of, like, the journalistic trappings that can kind of make uh, a sentence a little, you know, clumsier to read. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's I think it was the right choice because it does make the story more approachable and more gripping in a way that if it said like this specific quote was found yeah. in a government report, like it would have taken you out of it in a way that for a story that is trying to tell like a very technical bureaucrat, like there's just so much in it and it's so long that I think they, it's an interesting stylistic choice that I, I end up agreeing with, but they do make, put a footnote that explains like why it's makes sense for a Tom Clancy novel makes less sense <laughs> for an investigative right. report to not attribute like where the information is along the way. Um, and so just, if you're wondering like, why do they do that? Not others. Like there is your explanation because they made a conscious choice to kind of cut some of that stuff stylistically. Right. I mean, for, for an article of this size to be an, and of this like, like uh, uh hyper, hyper like bureaucratic, like, and, and like the fact that they were, they got so much of this information from, from like, uh, confidential reports uh, that included over 13,000 pages of documents, photos, and transcripts of, like, sailor interviews. Like, for that, for all of this information to be distilled in such a legible, like, long-form piece was, like, pretty incredible for me. Um, uh, just to be able to, like, actually follow along everything that was going on in a subject matter that I just, I don't have any context for. Um, so, I mean, the reporting here is like incredibly impressive. Um, the amount of, of, you know, of material that they drew from is, is just 
gargantuan. So the fact that it was all like just put into this very like accessible uh, uh, format was uh, very impressive. And I hope to see more things like this in the future for like these types of uh, investigative reporting. I think it's like a really positive um, thing. And uh, well, the ProPublica model is uh, it's not ad supported. No, it's right, a not is a nonprofit. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know the exact. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it just has like wealthy benefactors that are just like underwriting their work. But I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't. I don't know. If uh, it's yeah, it says as a nonprofit, pro. This is in their about page. ProPublica's work no. is powered primarily through donations. Um, so seems like they have a staff of yeah. seventy-five journalists, um, which is pretty big. Money well spent. Uh, they they've done some incredible stories. Uh, another another place that does, and this is incre- this is an increasingly important model uh, we're seeing as local newsrooms dry up. Right? Is this is this model of like directly supported uh, investigative reporting? Uh, because you know, a lot of your profit driven uh, newspapers and uh, media outlets are not going to allocate the time and resources necessary to get to the bottom of stories like this. Right? Like they will talk to spokespeople. And maybe review a couple documents, but like large, in most, in a lot of cases, like move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's so important that like places like ProPublica are doing things like this. Uh, places like The Reveal uh, are are investigating a lot of these really critical stories. That um, it would be it's it's a shame that they're they're quick to fall out of the news cycle because there's so much important information and so much that is revealed about the state of the world. Uh, you know, through through telling these stories, so. Um, you know, you should, you should definitely check out, uh, this, this series of articles they ran over at ProPublica. You should check out ProPublica. Um, but yeah, this, this particular story, fight the ship is just an incredible achievement and an incredible presentation. Um, and I cannot believe such a long article like passed so quickly, uh, as I was reading it. Yeah, totally. Uh, so that will do it for this week's waypoints. Our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klubbick. Natalie. At Natalie Watson. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. Uh, again, I like to think we're five stars, but that's for you to say, uh, not me. I'm a man of the people. Uh, we'll be back again with, uh, ah, is it? We're, yeah, it's Waypoint Radio this Friday, uh, and I think Lore Reasons is with Patrick with uh, Austin being on uh, hiatus. I'm not sure when the next Lore Reasons is. Uh, you'll just have to wait and see. Soon. We're working on it. Yeah, don't don't worry. You'll you'll get the lore. There's there's so much more lore uh, for you to get. Well, you'll get something. I don't want to. Let's not overpromise with Lore Reasons <laughs> mission statement. Lean into the mystery. Lore is discussed whether. <laughs> What you get on the other side of that is... All will be uh, revealed on more reasons <laughs> in a comprehensive, authoritative, and 100% accurate uh, podcast. Sure. Uh, you should also it. be sure and listen to our new podcast, Be Good and Rewatch It, uh, where this week I think it's Patrick and Danielle diving into Sunshine, uh, which you just referred to, Patrick. Uh, so you should you should check that out on the Be Good and Rewatch It feed. Hope you'll join us for that and join us again uh, on Friday for Waypoint Radio. But until then... Do not give in to astonishment.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Nice. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Ooh, meaty pieces. <sighs> meaty pieces. Yeah, we need, we need something a little lighter next week. Everything will... is bad. <laughs> yeah. Everything is bad. The essay. <laughs> um... Like that Lego oh, movie course. song that's everything is awesome, but it's actually everything is bad. Everything is bad. <laughs> everything Next week is I bad. talked about how much I did, did not enjoy Infinity War. Oh, yeah? You, you just saw it? Yeah, because yeah, I finally saw it. I was sick. and I really I liked Infinity it. War. Yeah, I loved Infinity War. I oh. feel like I do think part of that movie, like being part of the cultural moment was probably somewhat important in like that aspect of it because i could definitely see it not being nearly as like just as being part of the continuum i had no attachment to anyone because i haven't watched like i haven't kept up with this like iteration of the marvel universe like i've seen one like pieces of everything Mm -hmm. like one in in probably civil war in the captain america series i saw like one of the thor movies one you know like i haven't like really followed it all to this point yeah um Catch me never watching Ant Man on the Wasp. <laughs> Sorry, Patrick. Yo, that movie's pretty good. Honestly, if you're gonna watch any of them, yeah, come on. What, what you gotta like, seriously, like, 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 straight up honesty. It's like, it's really? like the better version of like what people like in Guardians of the Galaxy. Even as someone that likes Guardians of the Galaxy, like, isn't Thor I Ragnarok like... the best version of Guardians of the Galaxy? It's a yeah, no, version. yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. Please, yeah, ex- yeah, Rob. So I'm just saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. one of the other things Infinity War does is it totally fucks up Thor Ragnarok. Like, why? Basically, the end of, because the end of Thor Ragnarok, basically, what happens the second after that movie ends, yeah, is literally everybody is murdered. Yes, like Thor Ragnarok is like, woo, awesome, fun time. <laughs> Thirty seconds later, every single Surprise, character in bitch. that movie, <laughs> yeah, and like. <laughs> It's fucked up. It's fucked up. That was a it's wild fu- beginning because I. This should, this should just be on the pod next week. Let's oh, yeah. We should just. Yeah, we should. No, look. <laughs> we'll do. Look. I like. We'll discuss it next week. Fine. We will talk about. Because it's not be good and rewatch it worthy. But I have some feelings about Infinity War yeah. and the narrative integrity of Thor Ragnarok. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to dig into that. I'm interested. I have to. When is, when is Endgame out? Uh, Endgame is a while out, isn't it? No, it's no, it's, it's like the spring. Finish. April twenty. Are you serious? Yeah, time. Oh yeah. shit. Okay. Marvel comes out in two weeks. Let's so. do a, let's do a Marvel pod before Hell Endgame yeah. Yeah. comes out I'm for in. sure. Because I. Okay. Um. Yeah. So do we want to then do we do be good and rewatch it? Let's for, just wait. Like, Infinity yeah, just... War, Ant Man and the Wasp. <laughs> no. <to> Endgame. <laughs> the three movies. We have, cho- we have chosen. You know, a very specific narrative arc. <laughs> Ant-Man of the Look, Wasp. Ant-Man. Natalie, because here's the, the here, here's the thing, I think. Yeah. Ant-Man, 
mm-hmm. may be the key to this entire thing. I'm going to be pissed if it is. Also, it 100 percent is. Yeah. Who do you think should be the king? The the, the key to this entire thing. Uh, who's left? I don't remember who's still alive. Well, none of those people are really dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but they're like dissolved into some other universe. Ant Ant Man, the Phantom like, Zone, l- largely will probably be the linchpin on which like <sighs> Endgame hangs on. Yeah. Wow, like do Captain we have Marvel. a Paul Rudd through line right now that we're yes, writing? Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Wow. We do. You know what? There are worse things to have, you know? <laughs> you got to pick them. So what's next? Like, Knocked Up? Was he in that movie? <laughs> 40-year-old... What's the one? This is, <laughs> this is your 40s? Those, was he? This is... <laughs> he was in... Wait, I don't know. I, I don't watch... The classic Judd Avatar, This is your... <laughs> Isn't that a movie? <laughs> That's a movie. I'm not a, I'm not a liar. This is your 40s, Paul Rudd. <laughs> what? What? This is 40. There's a movie called This is 40. Okay, that's okay. With Paul. Oh, okay. God. Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann. Are they married in real life? They should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, she is married to Judd Apatow. Oh, makes sense. Okay. Acting is weird. I would not direct a movie where my. I don't you know, know what else is weird is Paul Rudd looks older and clueless than he does in Ant Man. Yeah, he's yeah. True, true. It's 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 like oh shit! Like, why does he look better now? Hey, were people freaked out? Did you post a Twitter poll? Was that a Twitter poll you posted about Clueless? No. So BuzzFeed already ran a poll. Oh, I see. I see. And so I was like, somebody surely has examined this question. So that's that is the people speaking on BuzzFeed. But were people freaked out at the time? Is my question. No, I do not remember that being any kind of narrative. But like the internet didn't exist. Like, would, would I even know? Yeah, the internet exists. It was 1995. The internet barely exists. There's a forum. Yeah. There's a chat room. There was AOL, man. Like, I'm you sorry, are you are not allowed to authoritarily wait yeah. on what it was in 19. 19- when I was excuse me when I was Natalie, born, there were forums. Natalie, if you want to see what the internet was like, yeah, in 1995. You need to watch You've Got Mail. I've seen that. Because that is a 100% accurate documentary. Well, then, yes, there you know, you know what it was like. It's it been was, a while, though. You were getting catfished by Tom Hanks. That's what the internet was. Damn. Just all the time. <laughs> Who among us has not? <laughs> we were all get, like, that's when parents, like, wouldn't allow me on AOL unsupervised because they were like, Tom Hanks is on. He's <laughs> online. You read that Bloomberg piece about Tom Hanks, right? Oh, my. Wait, God. is there actual? No. no. <laughs> okay. I was like, oh, no. If they Has Tom... <laughs> Have we lost Tom? No, if we if if Tom if Tom Hanks gets canceled, then you know, man, what the, fuck, what the fuck's the point of anything anymore? It's all over. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have attachments to anyone because I'm just waiting for that that cancel yeah. button. Bing bing, canceled. <laughs> bing bing, you're canceled, bitch. What? Wait, what? <laughs> You know, you haven't heard that on social media when people when you get bink, canceled, bink, you go bink bink. bink. bink you canceled. You got bink bink. Bink bink. Anyway, the Twitter mobs coming for you. Bink bink. <laughs> it's like the Warriors come out and play. Bink bink. Are we doing clueless at three? We're doing clueless at three, right? Three thirty. Three thirty. Awesome. Bink. Hard out at six. Yeah. 
Yeah, I got to. We should not. We sh- we will not run into your heart out with Clueless. I do not think. I don't think, I think so either. So it is. It is a dense film. It is. So much happens in Clueless. A lot happens. A lot happens in Emma. Yes, that's. This is the thing. We'll, we'll get to that. I, I read the Spark Notes. <laughs> <laughs> For this show. For Emma. <laughs> awesome. Well. We get to the bottom of that three thirty. All right, everybody. Okay. Right. See ya. See ya. Pink, pink. World. Today's holiday is World Day of Social Justice. Rise up. Big day for the woke gamer. Rise up, woke gamer. Hi. Um. Are we actually doing uh, mine first, Rob? Pardon? Yeah, we are. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Let's uh, count in. All right. 31. Shall we go? 31. Yeah, I fucked oh, it up. My- oh, <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad. Oh, oh my I wish goodness. I was recording. I didn't know my Rob's hands could nervously right fart, now. but they did. Mine froze. Rob's, like, <laughs> I wish, I really I wish I had to get I missed it. I missed it. I was looking Fuck. at the clock. Uh, Damn. <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's try again at the top of the minute. Okay. <laughs> A blessed top of the minute clap. Rob clap. Yeah. (laughs) This is a man's podcast now, Patrick. That's right. Run home to your mama. I. All right. I'm excited for this. (sighs) Just okay. Oh, no. I might have the giggles. Kato, can you just include all of this? Yeah, it's all like parts of this back. in. Uh, oh no! Just put it at the end. Are we not doing oh, phrasing? I think, oh, I think I've got the giggles. <laughs> okay. All right. Ooh, shake people it out. lost their homes in this. Come on, think about. Think oh about my the people god! Not no. <laughs> I'm trying to get sad. <laughs> This is some heavy shit. I got to get. This is a really intense. Um, ep- I'm already emotional. I'm trying. Rob, I'm trying to get sad. Exactly. Okay. <clears throat> sad. 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 Sadney. Sadney. <laughs> Fuck it. We'll just talk about the AAF. <laughs> That's fine. Do you like it, it, honestly Wait. just flip it to the top and yeah. we'll just get this out of our system? Okay. <laughs>